This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. I am here with Greta Zaro, Director of Organizing at World Beyond War, and we'd like to tell you about the No War 2022 conference. Greta, I know this has been your thing, and you've done such an amazing job at previous conferences, which really were key moments in my life as somebody who learned how to be a peace activist. And it's by going to these types of events that you interface with other people and figure out, you know, you really can't be an activist alone. So these conferences have been great. Um, I'm looking forward to this one. Tell us about 2022. You're absolutely right, Mark, that World Beyond War's annual No War Conference really is this gathering, this convergence of anti-war activists and pro-peace activists and educators and researchers and students and journalists. And uh, it really is this gathering place for kind of, you know, the, the who's who in the peace movement. And it really has, as you said, kind of been this starting point for a lot of activists who have then continued their activist journey with World Beyond War and gone on to start chapters around the world. Uh, so we're very excited about the conferences. And of course, we had to kind of shift it up uh, with the pandemic. And last year, we did our conference on the Hopin platform. This year, we are using Zoom events. The conference will be July 8 through 10. It will be fully virtual. Um, and the Zoom events platform is a relatively new platform that kind of looks like your typical Zoom meeting or webinar experience, but then it has bonus features on top of that, such as networking and virtual expo booths. So it kind of creates that that feeling of networking and that feeling of interaction that you might get in a conference experience. Um, so this year's theme uh, is a really interesting one as well. It's titled Resistance and Regeneration, Reimagining a World Beyond War. And what it's about is sharing tangible, positive, concrete examples of people who are duly resisting and regenerating, meaning that they are opposing militarism in their communities. Uh, and that can take many different forms, like shutting down a military base, divesting their city from weapons, whatever it might be, um, potentially, you know, actively being in a war zone. But then beyond the resistance piece is the regeneration um, through a variety of different techniques. Um, for example, someone who has created a peace park uh, in a site that was going to be a military base, or for example, after divesting a city, what do you do next? And then, you know, reinvesting the money into community needs. So it's kind of looking at that second piece as well, which is so critical to to not only dis, you know disarmament, demilitarization, but then creating that culture of peace. So so that's a little bit of a summary of this year's theme. I think the theme is very powerful. Um, it really resonates with me. There's also another R word, resilience. Um, I, I read an article you wrote, I believe it was published in Common Dreams, and it seemed related to the theme of this conference, resilience-based organizing. Sort of organizers and activists need to think about what we're building. And can you tell us a little about resilience-based organizing and how that connects with the theme of this conference? Yes. So resilience-based organizing is actually something that I just came across in my conference research. Um, it's a term that I was introduced to from Movement Generation, which is an incredible organization that I think is really doing this two-prong approach that we're talking about. And the term resilience-based organizing essentially means, in, in contrast, I'll contrast it with a more traditional campaign based organizing. So in a more traditional campaign based organizing, you're calling on a decision maker to change a policy or a regulation or a piece of legislation. So that might look like, you know, calling on your member of Congress or calling on the president or the prime minister or a university president or something like that. You're calling on a decision maker uh, who has the jurisdiction to make a change that you want to see. Whereas in resilience-based organizing, you're taking the power to act into your own hands. You're, you're taking the yep. agency to act. Um, and so whether or not that conflicts with political or legal structures, essentially, you are just making the tangible change that you want yes. to see. Um, and so I think like a prime example of that would be guerrilla gardening, um, which is mm. when people take over empty lots in urban spaces, for example, and whether or not they have the legal jurisdiction to use that empty lot, you know, they create a community garden out of it. 
that's just one of, you know, there could be thousands of examples, but to help kind of visualize what we mean with resilience-based organizing. So um, this term kind of came up in my conference research, and I think that it's one example of the way that we can resist and regenerate at the same time. Yep. You know, in all of this, the the common thread I get is the movement coming together, you know, um, becoming a more than a community. I mean, it's been a community, but becoming more than a community, um, maybe becoming a structure that can live by itself. Um, I Another unusual thing about this conference is the connection to um, Sinjaneva. The, um, can you tell us about where, uh, you know, this is a virtual conference, but it also has a physical space. So can you tell us about that? Yeah. So we often try to pair our conferences with the education, the networking, but also an action component. And that's been harder as we've gone virtual. Um, for example, when our conferences were in person, um, for example, in Toronto, we had the conference and then the action component was we all had a big rally and we marched throughout the city. Uh, or in Shannon in Ireland, we had the conference and then the action was we all went out and did a direct action trying to get to the airport and had you know, a nonviolent sort of interaction with the police. And, and um, it, we were raising awareness about the fact that the Shannon Airport is this kind of hub uh, where U.S. military planes and, and troops and weapons are funneled through the airport onto the Middle East. Yes. Um, you were there, which Mark. Is, which, yes, I, I, I'm the one who got lost on the way to the airport. So I showed up a half half hour late with my with my car driving on the wrong side of the road in Ireland. But, um, and by the way, the Shannon Airport issue was newly relevant because Shannon Airport is now sending materials to Ukraine, I believe. Mm -hmm. So yes, tell me about Sinyaneva. Yeah, so that's so that's kind of the action component. So even though the conference is fully virtual, we wanted to all continue that action aspect. So we've partnered with the Save Sinyaneva campaign, which is based in Montenegro. Um, and we've been working with them for a few years. Um, it's this really amazing pasture land community, um, people who have been in the region for generations and have this history of farming and um, just a beautiful ecological spot and cultural spot. It's near several UNESCO sites. Um, and then it was threatened because NATO wants to build a military training ground there. Yep. And so they did this incredible nonviolent resistance camp where they camped out and they protested the the creation of this military training ground and they were successful um but they're not stopping there because it's you know one of those continuing type of campaigns where they need to keep up the pressure and make sure it doesn't happen so we've continued that partnership uh through various um different ways like a petition campaign different webinars and other events that we've done and so we wanted to kind of highlight that campaign um mid-july is an important moment for them and they're planning this week of action in montenegro and so we said wow let's let's time our conference Definitely. with that yes. you know so we have the virtual conference happening july 8 through 10 and then they'll have in-person actions happening in montenegro at the same time uh, and we'll be kind of zooming them into the conference and we'll be able to see what they're doing as well. And then there'll be opportunities for the conference participants to be supporting the campaign, whether through signing the petition or other ways to kind of engage and as a conference body of hundreds of people internationally using our voices to amplify this issue. Yes. Well, this is what it's about. And I, I hope everybody who's listening uh, can, can see how much there is to dig into here. I mean, whether you want to learn about this protest in Montenegro or resilience-based organizing or regeneration and resistance and what those words mean, um, this is where we're going to be making it happen. Greta, thank you. Thanks. Yes, people can go to worldbeyondwar.org slash nowar2022. And there you can register and sign up. And we hope to see you July 8th through 10th. Hi, and welcome to episode 36 of the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, and this time I'm going to remember to say I'm speaking to you today from the Lenape homeland, a place with millenniums of human history, also known today as Brooklyn, New York. 
My guest today is from halfway across the world, Alison Broinowski, who I know as a member of the board of directors at World Beyond War. Alison has a PhD in Asian Studies from Australian National University and was an Australian diplomat until 1996. Her last overseas assignment was at the Australian Mission to the UN in New York. She has written or edited 14 books and many articles on Australia's interface with Asia, with the United Nations, and the world. Four of her latest books are About Face, Asian Accounts of Australia, 2003, Howard's War, 2003, Allied and Addicted, 2007, and with David Stevens, The Honest History Book, 2017. She is Vice President of Australians for War Powers Reform. With all these credentials, there's a special reason I thought of asking Alison to be my guest for this month's podcast, this month being May 2022. It's been a hard month because of the uncontrollable and chaotic war in Ukraine, and we are hoping for a ceasefire because that's the only way this will stop getting worse. We're thinking of our friends in Ukraine and all of Europe and Asia who are directly and terribly affected. Recent events have also hit hard here in the United States of America, where these states don't feel very united, between a tyrannical Supreme Court and an unaccountable and corrupt, militarized and bloated police force that's apparently scared of actual guns when a shooter enters an elementary school in a border neighborhood. Well, speaking just for myself, it's hard to feel optimistic for those of us anti-war activists who work together at World Beyond War. So I was happy several days ago when I saw an email from our board member, Alison Broinowski, saying there was some encouraging news for activists around the world from her country, Australia. I can't think of a better introduction than this. Alison, you bring us good news. So hello, Alison. Hello, Mark. Thank you for inviting me. Why don't we start with um, how are things in your part of the world? Things in our part of the world have suddenly improved, I have to say. The Saturday before last, it was rainy, it was our election day, and by the end, people were a bit pessimistic, thinking that we were going to repeat the events of the last 10 years and stay in the dark tunnel that we've been in for a long, long time. And then the clouds lifted, the sun came out, and we all felt as if we'd been reborn in a new world. It's like we still are going around grinning. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Everything has That's so great to hear. (laughs) Tell us what you're talking (laughs) about. Very encouraging, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) Please tell us the whole story. Start at the beginning. Because I will tell you that, you know, many places around the world, like here, we don't get news from around the world very much. So please tell us. Actually, in one way, I'm quite pleased that you don't, because the (laughs) reputation of our country would be even worse if you knew more about it. Wow. But we have had an appalling, quite frankly, government for the last 10 years. And people have gone on electing them because they were scared. They were, first of all, they were scared of terrorism. And then they were scared of the virus and they were scared of of an influx of refugees from Middle East, all these things. And the government harped on these fears, knew how to manipulate them, knew how to make reasonable people quite scared. And, 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 you know, and then if it wasn't all of that, it would be the cost of living or, or rising interest rates or something like that. So every time there was an election, they'd get people scared again, and they'd vote for them again better the devil they knew than the one mm. they didn't. They kept convincing them. But this time it didn't work. It didn't work for several reasons. One is that people had begun to see through it, that these scares, most of them were fairly phony. They disappeared overnight and were taken over by some other fear. And they also realised, I think, that they were being manipulated. Hmm. It, it takes Australians a while to, to rise to anger, but slowly they rose. And wow. the way their anger was expressed was not in marches in the streets or, you know, anthrax attacks or anything sort of savage like that. 
But the way Australians do it is they get together and they talk. It used to be called conspiracy. They, they whisper in corners and they say, we are pissed off with this lot. And the people who were mainly getting together and saying that to each other were women. Hmm. The reason that not alone, of course, not only women, there were plenty of men feeling the same way, but the reason it was particularly women was that in the last term, in, in, in the term of the last government, still the Liberal National Party after all these years, three-year term, they got worse and worse. And among the many bad things they did was they they were increasingly aggressive, belligerent, uh, threatening uh, the rise of the rise of China had to be confronted. The war drums were beating. This sort of rubbish going on and on. And if I may ask, what was the motivation behind that, oh, that drum beating that against China? This peaceful rise was made to look like a big threat to Australia. Um, nobody else in the region is particularly terrified. Um, was this I, about selling? Like, what is, is there an economic motivation behind that? Um, but, but the reason, I mean, China is... And, and was throughout the whole time Australia's biggest trading partner. We are utterly dependent on... I did our, not know that. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, on our exports to China. But in the last couple of years, partly as a result, I might say, of influence from Washington, our foreign minister decided to oblige them by calling for an... Um, an international, independent international inquiry into who started the uh, COVID-19 virus, implicitly China. China was furious mm-hmm. because they were very sensitive about that subject, as you can imagine. So they immediately started, and that wasn't the only provocation, but that was one. They also refused to, they, they were the first country in the world to refuse uh, Huawei access to Australian business and so on. And so China took retaliatory steps. They cut off huge amounts of our trade, um, only retaining iron ore, which they really need, and coal. But a lot of other things, you know, we export coal in large amounts. Um, But uh, other things, they, you know, wine, barley, all these things that we used to sell huge amounts to China is all cut off. No ministerial contact for two years. They haven't spoken to a single Australian minister. So we're in a deep freeze. I might add, too, that when this trade embargo um, went on, the country that most benefited from China's demand that it wasn't getting from Australia was the United States. And it was the United States that put us up to do this in the first place. So we have. Would you say, if I may ask, would you say the United States played a um, domineering role in that? Or did Australia choose this relationship? I think that's one way of putting it. But they know perfectly okay. well. In fact, we've heard um, Americans say, Australians will do whatever we tell them. I have heard it said, and it's true. At least under that government, we would. Now, what we're yeah. hoping in the future, this won't happen. Anyway, coming back to the women, what they did was gradually this sort of slowness to anger boiled up a bit, partly because of the way... Uh, the government had treated women in Parliament House itself and in their own uh, party. And they just didn't, people knew that whatever they said, they just didn't get the anger that women Mm. were feeling. So around the country, these voices started being formed, called voices for this or that or the other electorate. So my electorate is... is, um, um, Wentworth. So you have voices for Wentworth. You have voices for North Sydney. You have voices for Willoughby, etc. And and these were just ordinary citizens, many of them women, getting together and saying what their issues were. The issues basically boiled down to three. One was anxiety that nothing was being done about climate change. Nothing was being done about corruption huge amounts of it going on, which in the past had been sort of, oh, well, that's business as usual. No more. They were sick of that. And thirdly, um, 
they wanted better treatment for women across the board and recognition and understanding, not just... What, what does that mean, better treatment for women? Well, in what participation, sense? participation in politics and in high levels of government. I mean, they would give women unwinnable seats. Gotcha. And these voices things, they were in the end, there were about 35 of them across the country um, all getting together. And then in came um, some money from a, a wealthy donor and they set up uh, uh, what they called um, the C200 Independence. And the independents were mostly women, stood in all these electorates, and uh, there must have been some, oh, might have been perhaps 30 of them altogether by the time the election took place. Ten of them are now in Parliament. So this is going to make the, and Labour, the opposition, lost a lot of votes to these independents. So that means that they can make the difference between the two parties, which up to then have been bipartisan on so many things, in particular foreign and defence policy, just dittoing each other all the time for fear of being wedged or split. And so what we are so excited about is that these women, the independents, have now got a, a, a sort of a casting vote in the parliament and will use it. And they understand the strength and responsibility they now have. Mm. And it's people are saying we're never, we may never go back to a two-party system again. It may always well. be this fragmented, separate, uh, vested interests um, coming in to express um, other opinions than those of the major parties. Now, having been through a, a lot of electoral, shall we say, earthquakes here in the United States, do you feel that your democracy has integrity? <laughs> I've just written an article in which I've pointed out that some people in recent times have been calling Australia a kakistocracy. Do you know what that is? <laughs> Oh, yes, I do. I do. You can say, please. Government by the worst people. (laughs) Yes, yes. Government of the worst. I mean, I do think actually kakistocracy is a serious description of fascism because the whole idea is to um, make people distrust government. Well, that's so by by being blatantly incompetent, I think that was certainly the Trump shtick was to be blatantly dishonest, to be to be. Yeah, sorry to sorry to transition to my own dystopia um, and Trump, but you know, kakistocracy is very real here in the United States. Very real. It's what dominates our healthcare industry. It's kakistoc- You know, sh- the the government tries to make healthcare dysfunctional to to discourage the idea that there should be public healthcare. So, uh, but not to talk about my country. Let's get back to the good news, Alison. <laughs> back to you. <laughs> I mean, we're bad, and I don't think yet we're quite that bad. We do select out the worst aspects of American society and copy them, I have to tell you. But we're not. That's terrible. We're not that far <laughs> We're not that far advanced. <laughs> um, but um, as far as Australian democracy is concerned, that is, the integrity of that is exactly what the independents were protesting about. That accountability in government was one of their... I mean, they just, they just set their margins very narrow. Accountability and integrity in government, they wanted. Recognition, better understanding of the uh, issues affecting women and climate change, those three things. They concentrated on that. And, and then everything else they will deal with as they come to it, including, we hope, my organisation hopes, um, reform of the war powers, which is a... Yes, let's talk about that, please. please. For you. Okay. Yes, please tell us how that is affected and how that has been going. Okay. That's a movement that's been going in Australia now for 12 years. We've been trying and trying, as you have, to get our war powers reform, uh, reformed because ours are even worse than yours. The, pre- the Prime Minister alone in Australia can make a decision for war just like that without any 
control of any kind. Now, what we want is a debate and a vote in both houses of parliament before Australian troops are committed to an overseas war. I mean, self-defence is a different matter, but an overseas war, dispatching the troops to some expeditionary war, we want that kind of, of democratic control over it. Definitely, yeah. definitely. And we are now, that's one of the bright rays of sunlight that has risen. We are now encouraged to hope that that will happen because the Labour Party, which is now in government, has promised twice at its two most recent uh, conventions, as you would call them, you know, meetings to make policy, that they would hold an inquiry into the war powers in their first term in government. So we're going to hold them to that and make sure that they do. And so um, it only requires, it would only require a minor amendment to the Defence Act for us to get it. And we are very hopeful that we might get that done soon. Nice, very nice. And does that have teeth, as we say here, you know, because often what our Congress does does not have teeth. Do you know what I mean? Like, do, if that if that passes, does that actually change the structure of de- decision for the military? Because here in the United States, I think sometimes the military will sort of barrel ahead. Yeah, well, um, your military is a great deal more powerful than ours, and it has. Yeah. Well, I'm talking about the chief executive, and it, it has a yes, mind of yes, its yes, own. Yes. I know. Um, yes, <laughs> but uh, yes, it's as simple as that. All the government would need to do is change the Defence Act and before any future war, I mean, it wouldn't ban war entirely. It's not that. But before any future war, they would be required to have a debate and a vote in the parliament. And the way the parliament is now structured, that would not just be done on the numbers. There would be a real issue to be discussed. Very good. And and. Talking about strengthening democracy, we would hope that in that process, the reasons for the need for such a war would be aired for the people to see. And if there was public opposition to that, then anyone who voted for it would be accountable to their electorate. And their electorate would say to them, hey, you voted for that, and that war was a disaster. Now, that is quite a a brace. Yes. Prospect for a politician. Yes. Great. That makes a lot of sense, Alison. You you really helped me understand. Thank you. Um, that's really good. And I, I hope that this podcast helps get the message out. Like I say, I can watch an hour and a half a day of cable TV. And sometimes I do because I try to monitor the worst um, and not hear a word about your hemisphere. So, and that's horrible especially since you are quite the geopolitical player with, let's speak of Australia, you know, with China um, and also Ukraine. And actually, so Alison, I would like to talk to you about your view of what's going on in Ukraine and China. But before then, I, uh, we haven't talked much about who you are. You have quite a bio. Take us back to the beginning. I met you a couple of years ago at the World Beyond War board. Um, but Take us back to the beginning. How did you become a peace worker or peace? What do you call yourself and how well, did actually, you become you, that? Well, actually, you describe <laughs> me as a peace activist. I don't think I've ever thought of myself as a peace activist. Mm. The real peace activist in our family is Helen Caldicott, who is my husband's sister. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, as, as one unkind journalist once said, we can't imagine what dinner – Dinner conversations are like at the Bronowski's house. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Wow. But all of our family, of course, support Helen's views. But I've never thought of myself as a peace activist because, in fact, I spent my whole working life as a diplomat, which is virtually this ought to be the same thing. Except in it sounds it, yes. yeah, it sounds good. Except when you work for a government that tells its diplomats to go and be arms marketers and so on, over which some of your compatriots have actually resigned and refused to go on working in American embassies. Are you thinking of like Anne, right? Yeah, and there are others, I believe, anyway. Yes, um, but but so actually, rather than activism in my working life, peace was just 
a given as one of the things that you were aiming at. And I think that I started to really think seriously about that. Um, when uh, I was actually in Japan, I was having a baby and I was in a Tokyo hospital on the first day of the Six-Day War, which is just the anniversary is just hmm. coming up. And I was listening. You're talking about 1967, right. the war between Israel, Egypt. You know, for many people who listen to this, Six-Day War, will not they will not of know course. what that is. Of course, uh, they're yes. too young. <laughs> um, yes, hopefully, yes, I like to get a young audience. So Six-Day War was a very dramatic war between Israel and most Arab countries under Egypt's leadership, yeah. I believe. But at least, but go on, at least go it was, on. So, it was please. quickly resolved, but not favorably for some of Israel's neighbors. Um, right. Anyway, so I was in hospital and listening to the Security Council, and I was thinking, I've got this little baby. What sort of world is she going to grow <laughs> up in? You know, and and I think I sort of it. Ent- you're very emotional at such a time. And it really entered yes. my soul. And I thought, I've got to get on with this. When I go back to work, I've got to move forward. So yes. That was also the time of the Vietnam War, right? Uh, the, sure early, was. the early stages of that. Yes. And I became, I really worked hard on finding out what was going on. And I became quite vociferous about. Um, Australia's role in the Vietnam War. Which we, what was Australia's role? Well, in we the invited Vietnam ourselves <laughs> to be okay. in it. No, true. We did. Okay. We even wrote the letter of invitation and took oh, it no. to the president of South Vietnam and got it signed and sent back, so that we. So did you send soldiers, airplanes? Oh, we did. Yeah. Nothing like as many as you, but we lost a lot of people and we spent a lot of time and money for what. And, huh. in fact, eventually my husband, who's a diplomat too, ended up being ambassador in Hanoi, which was nice. But, wow. Yeah. Um, but that was a, a, a very seminal experience for me. So Vietnam sort of made me think seriously about war. Then on we went and we had the, we had the interregnum. Uh, you know, there was enough... The United States was over war for at least a decade, decade or two. Are, are you talking about um, basically the Ford and Carter administration? I am. Yes. Now, I'm. I actually. I'm. I, I, by the way, it should be obvious. Everything I say is my own point of view, not World Beyond War, and you as well. And me too. But I'm a very big fan of Jimmy Carter. I think, you know, he really, really dedicated his entire life. To peace building. That's true. And he uh, yeah. and Trump were the only two American presidents, I understand, in many years who didn't have a war that they had initiated on their watch. I think that's true. I, I would not, again, I want to talk about your country more than mine, but I believe Trump started a war with Iran. He assassinated an Iranian um, active well, he military did, but it wasn't leader. A war. Yes. Only because Iran very um, deftly avoided apocalypse. Right. He also started a war on the United States border with Mexico. I'm, I consider that Trump had had attempt, provoked a war okay. with me personally. Okay, we'll take Trump. Yeah, personally, but that's me. I'm yeah, not a fan. Right. But anyway, I accept that. We'll take <laughs> Trump off the list. Anyway, going back to yeah. me, what then happened was I got myself back and went to lived two years in Iran. By the way. Uh, had a, wow! Yeah, what a career! Wow, yeah. go oh, on. Mainly Asian countries. Um, but, okay. But Japan was my speciality because I, I, once you've studied Japanese, you've got to keep on using it. Otherwise, all that work was not worth it. So I went back to Japan to work again in the eighties, and all of that, I, I just kept. Working as a diplomat, writing books, looking after my kids, and going sometimes mm. with my husband on his postings and sometimes not. So that was how it worked. And finally, in 1996, um, 
John Howard got elected after a long period of, mm-hmm. of Labour governments, which were very positive about people like me, married women diplomats who posed them all sorts of problems and so on. John Howard came in and I knew that his ideas would make it impossible for me to be a useful Australian diplomat. You know, I couldn't be of service to his government. So I got out and went over to ANU and at the ripe old age of 60, I did PhD. And, uh, and then... Wow, great. Oh, it was fun. And uh, on Asian affairs. Huh. And, then, and then kept on doing that, doing a bit of teaching, more writing, etc. Uh, until um, back here in Sydney, um, I, I um, was vice president, as you said, of Australians for War Powers Reform. Last year, yes. our president, who was sec- had been secretary of the Department of Defence in his working life, Paul Barrett, last year uh, he died. So I, by default, became president, which is what I am. And that's why why some of the time I'm too busy to do the things that I ought to do for Well Beyond War. I understand. Uh, You're obviously not power hungry because a power hungry person, like that would be the last story they would tell. I am not. And in fact, fact, I keep looking around for someone to take my pen because (laughs) really it's all a bit too much. Um, But I understand. Anyway, there it is. And it keeps my hand and it's very useful to have world beyond war perspectives to feed into my lot and vice versa. Because, I mean, I can tell you what we're doing about war powers reform, for for instance. And Mm -hmm. I've been following what David has been writing on your... David Swanson. David Swanson. What David Swanson's been writing about your efforts to change the war powers. These are very useful and also he yeah. he has written too, um, and it's all on the World Beyond War website for your listeners, um, a comparison between the various countries in the world and what their constitutions say about going to war. And that is so useful for me because I can draw on that for our campaign as well. Wonderful. So, well, that's very nice to hear. Um, each of us get something different out of World Beyond War. One big thing I get out of it is the community, the global community, like here I am talking to you. Would there be any chance I would have met you with if we were not both involved in ending war? Like so, yeah, now I hope we all, and, yeah, and I, I hope we will end war, but yeah, I'm glad to be in a global community. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah, so I hope we see more of you. Um, yeah, if you had time, you'd probably get pulled into leadership too. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, oh, you know, nobody is power hungry in among progressives. Progressives don't tend to be power hungry people. They tend to be very busy, hardworking, egoless, focused people. It's true. Um, yeah. And that's what our organization is really. And I'm sure it's what yours is. I looked at Australian for War Powers Reform website. Looks very good. Looks very cool. Um, so it's good to know about you. I would like to now know what is your view and what is Australia's attitude towards Ukraine and the Ukraine-Russia disaster? Okay. I call it a disaster. Well, I can, I can only say that the Australian view of what's happening in Ukraine was formed under the previous government which only lasted until last Saturday, right? (laughs) So what the new government will do about Ukraine, I have no idea yet, except that um, it won't be much because all we've done so far is just send some armaments. Uh, A lot or a little? I don't know what you said. Not a lot by comparison. I'm glad to hear that. A, A small amount and some... I believe, medical equipment and some cyber technology. What that's for, I'm not sure, but we did. Well, no, there has been a barrage of um, one-sided coverage 
of the war here pushing the United States. Yes. Oh, please. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was curious. What is the attitude of not necessarily the the clued in people, you know, but the average person you meet, uh, you know, on the street. If you're the average person, assuming that you only are exposed to the mainstream media and taking into account the fact that Murdoch is dominant in Australia, imagine the message that they get about Ukraine. That's what they get. And most of them believe it. And even the ABC, which is a a, a taxpayer-funded broadcasting free-to-air service, has picked up this agenda, particularly the hate Russia agenda from Britain. They have endless hate Russia commentators who go on with this. And the the, uh, balancing side of that argument that is to say, what do the Russians think, is very rarely um, given, yeah. well, it's never given matching airtime. So what Australians have, most of them, I think, is a fairly skewed view on this. And we have friends who we can't discuss it with. We really can't because oh. they are so, so convinced that the Russians are the pits. And if what I believe to be the agenda of NATO is played out, that is to just go on extending this war to as long as it takes to get rid of Putin or to make Russia collapse economically, then that is what they will do. And Biden has more or less made it clear that that's his intention. He said, I mean, Ukraine would have come to a peace accord with Russia ages ago. The Minsk Accords, they would have. Later, they would have too. But they can't because NATO is saying to them, no, 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 no. Keep fighting, keep fighting. And I have written an article saying they're fighting to the last Ukrainian. They don't care. Ukraine is the turf over which the large elephants are fighting. And if they get trampled... They are just collateral damage. It is, it is the old formula. And I believe that what the United States has in mind, or at least what Biden particularly has in mind, is something like he, he goes back to the past, you know, when things were good. When the United States wore down the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, yes, I think they're using that model, that old model, what a what an idiotic idea to try to gain advantage based on a and, and why, old model okay, so, when we don't need advantage. Like, we exactly. need sanity. Next step. We need peace. Next step. Yeah. Why do they want to gain that advantage? Because there are three countries contesting greatness. And the United States doesn't want there to be three countries contesting greatness. They want one. You talk about United States, Russia, and China. One, is that correct? One Can world I, yeah. China isn't it? China isn't it. And, and yes. when you ask about Can Australia's I, view, we are not much engaged with the Ukraine thing, except we have some Ukrainian community in Australia who are all pro-Kiev, as you can imagine. Uh, yes. But um, in, the, in the future, depending upon how long this thing drags out and what the outcome of it is, the future will concern us because the future target for being reduced from a contestant for hegemony is China. Now, China is right here in our region, our largest trading partner, enormously strategically important to us. And the last thing Australia wants, or Australia should want, is hostility and enmity with China. Because if there were a war with China, with or without the United States, we would lose. The United States would lose a war with China. And so so there is no, it's quite clear. They would be fighting for their own homeland. So so it sounds like the Ukraine-Russia proxy conflict is a rehearsal for the big I one. think it is. 
with China. I think it is. What a disgusting, horrible thing to do that they're taking us to this ledge. Because the fact is, if it gets to nuclear war before it even gets to the, I mean, I don't think I personally, by the way, I would like to, if I may, I'd like to tell you how I see what you're saying. I think you and I are very simpatico in what we're saying, but I see this very much as motivated by the logic of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, as I, uh, you know, now, by the way, I didn't mean to like bite your head off before about Trump, you know, obviously a sensitive topic. Um, but to talk about the U.S. elections, it's very painfully close to my anguished heart right now. Um, and that doesn't mean I like any of the past presidents. I guess Jimmy Carter was the last one I really, really thought devoted his life to doing good. But, um, oh, I also wanted to say Trump also started the war with Venezuela. I mean, he he was the mastermind, air quotes, mastermind behind uh, the, the Juan Guaido fiasco. Um, so Trump was a disaster in foreign policy. But anyway, um, and Biden, I see as a very weak president. I see him as a, as a, you know, Menshevik. I see him as a Kerensky. I see him as a, um, as a, a Weimar. You know, he's, I don't believe that he personally wants war. I believe he's an economy president. I believe he's being dragged by and it's not any individual it's by the logic of capitalism it's by the logic of ayn rand you know greed is good um this war is good tv it's good weapons sales and it knocks off a competitor it's good mafia business the united states and nato are using mafia Mm -hmm. tactics in europe they have encircled they provoke this by encircling russia with uh, military bases, encroachment of treaties, and attacks on the pipeline. On the, so it was all about the fossil oh, yeah. fuels. So I think this is all about um, fossil fuels, greed, and capitalism, and um, Biden is being dragged. That's my view. How, how does that sound in, from your yeah, view I, halfway across? I completely agree with that. And the Nord Stream gas pipeline yes. is... Central element in that. And the way they have put pressure on the Germans to go against their economic interest and cut off that project or suspend it, as they now say, at the cost to their at cost to their own economy and their own capacity to, you know, heat their houses next winter, for instance, is really amazing. Mm -hmm. And and whether they hope that that oil import uh, will be replaced by American from American hmm. sources. I don't know, but yeah, what what are they even thinking? I, it's not as if there's any real coherent long term economic strategy behind be. this encirclement. There may well combi- be in some border. It might be disaster capitalism. I worry. What did you say? What What was it you said? I, I was. You were I was just thinking there may Thanks. be boardrooms in in. New York yes. there, where this is exactly what they're discussing. Wouldn't surprise oh me. My God. But then we're talking we're talking about disaster we capitalism. Are. We're talking about them saying, I believe that um I do believe that many New York executives, my neighbors here in Brooklyn, um, unfortunately, um I commingle with the worst of the worst capitalists here in New York. Um they they do read a lot of Ayn Rand, and they do believe that greed is good. And they are they are they they idolize Donald Trump um, still still, and they um, believe that it would be exciting to take us to the brink of nuclear apocalypse. And, that would be really and exciting. no further. And these people are in charge. No further. Oh yes, this is a this is the this is a bro sensibility here in wow. New York City among executives. I'm saying if you go to a backyard barbecue in Scarsdale or Westbury, Long Island, or Connecticut, or New Jersey. This is what the bros are talking about as they're barbecuing is, you know, wow, you know, the brink of nuclear. Mm. Like, I wonder if our, what if we use small weapons, you know, just knock out St. Petersburg, knock out Moscow, we could do it. Game of risk, you know, they're so stupid. They're so shallow. Battlefield nuclear weapons, as if, as if yeah. they have minimal effect, you know? This is in the country of Chernobyl, it's, for goodness yeah. sake. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, I've never been so, I've never been so scared um, in my life of nuclear war as yeah. I am right now. 
and and that is another element in you were talking before about the the people's access to the facts there's so much stuff flying around out there that's very difficult to sift out what is credible from what is not and one of my friends here in sydney puts up stuff all the time including reports that putin is critically ill um and and with what i'm not sure and because huh, and because right. he's likely to die he wouldn't care oh, yeah. if he had his finger on the nuclear button you know this is the it's all this, this is the yeah. line it's all this science fiction movie it thinking. really is um what they really should realize is we need to take our feet take our feet off the gas pedal and um, stop the escalation. Escalation is we need a ceasefire. We need negotiation. I mean, you're a diplomat. Seems to me that diplomacy, unfortunately, is dead. Diplomacy is in its it, in Ukraine is, is in intensive care. We, we, <laughs> we're hoping we're hoping with our new government. But these things are going to recover. And at last, the editorials in the papers are saying we should because our foreign service has been so (laughs) run down. But so has yours. You would have read that book by um, by Rohan, um, uh, uh, the the son of the famous... Oh, Ronan Ronan Farrow. Yes, yes. Ronan Farrow, yes. In which he describes how that was done, how the State Department was was stripped of all its best people and lost a third of its staff in a few months, this sort of stuff. Yes, I'm looking up the name of yeah. the book. Hang on. Um, War, War on, on Peace, Peace exactly. Right? Yes, well, many of his sure. books are about that. And, yes. Well, the same, yes. as I said, we imitate the worst things. We have done the same sort of thing here, and our firm... Foreign Damn. Service has been reduced to a sort of service agency that just makes appointments and runs overseas places for ministers to visit and stuff like that, but is not encouraged right. to have any expertise or any views. Uh, that That is actually slightly exaggerated because I have met some of the young heads of mission and they are impressive still. But the question is how much influence they have, and it's not much. So we're hoping that what we're hearing uh, from the new government is that the foreign service is going to be rebuilt, something that Labour governments in Australia have always done. In fact, when our Prime Minister was Gough Whitlam in 1972, he opened up the department uh, for a huge amount of recruiting because he wanted much more activism on foreign policy than his had happened under his predecessors, and that's how I got back into the department, having having been suspended for ten years for being married. That was for oh. being married. Oh wow! Well, wait, how did that well, happen? Why did that happen? You couldn't be married and be a permanent public servant. So how was it? What was it, what was it like service. to? It was. it was. Oh, really? Okay. In those days, and most most others. So, so then you were going to events. You were probably working with your husband. Were you basically helping him out? Um, but, but I was, it was writing books. Was it that? Oh, oh, I see. Okay. No, I was. So I was you always had your own having path. babies yes. and writing books. That's Great. what I did. And then when wow, when, how many children? Then when 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 nice. Goff Whitlam got in, he said, "Huh," he said, "Bronoska." He said, I want you back in the department, <laughs> which is, that's, that was the <laughs> way he, he talked. And I said, right. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. Among the diplomat or activist or progressive or whatever you call them, community that you interact with, you know, what is what is the mood these days and what is inspiring you? Like what books, music, like are, are there events, are there festivals, are there are there gatherings? Like how does your community there in Australia get together? Well, we were getting together a lot before before the election 
there were there were okay. demos all over the place and people nice. standing around with nice. large posters saying this and that, particularly anti-Orcus. You know about Orcus? No, no, I don't. Please oh, tell us. Well, Orcus is an agreement that the previous government struck in, in its dying days with the US and the UK to um, supply Australia. We would pay, of course, for everything. They went off very happy because it was a business deal for them. Um, uh, supply Australia with nuclear-powered submarines, which we mm-hmm. have never had. Oh, yes, I have Because heard having this. nuclear yes. ships in our ports is a, a no-no. Um, yeah, that makes you a target. Does. That makes you it a does. nuclear target. Great. Like, oh, thanks a lot. Hey, we're a nuclear yeah, well, target exactly. now. Exactly. Not only that, what? but but spending billions, untold billions of money for something that won't, won't be yeah. delivered for thirty years. By by which time? <laughs> by which time? I mean, in the meantime, how are we defended? Well, we don't have them, do we? So why is it so necessary to have them? It is not explained. Yeah. So demonstrations against that kind of thing, um, like outside defence um, conferences and that sort of uh, place, were taking place all the time, and marches in the streets. Marches in the streets collecting outside town halls and places like that were going on constantly. Since the election, you ask about celebrations, there were big election night parties. Where, nice, <laughs> where, nice. In you know, either in places where the successful contender was having a party, or in pubs, or in clubs, or in private houses, and some of them were very large, and some of them went on all night. But and and it hasn't that kind of euphoria hasn't been seen for a long time. But but hmm. since then, I mean, when are waiting? We don't have anything to demonstrate against. We have already demonstrated for yeah. um, what we are, are pleased about, but we're now waiting to see. We're, we're waiting for right. them to uh, keep their word on the things they've said they would do. We're waiting for them to do more than they said they would do. Well, why don't we leave it on that as our final plea to, to the world here from this humble podcast. Um, I'll ask you one more little question. Um, I always try to include music that my guests find inspiring, especially any music from your area. So is there any song that to you captures the mood of this moment in your time? there was a song that was used. I mentioned the independent who stood for my electorate in Wentworth. On the Friday... Mm -hmm before the Saturday election, all the people wearing teal-coloured T-shirts and teal-coloured umbrellas and dogs with teal bandanas round their necks, all this wave of teal flooded up the street on both sides, including past the offices of her opponent on one side and her (laughs) office on the other. And across the street were going mothers and daughters to the very exclusive girls' private school called Ascombe, where she herself went to school, and they had teal mm-hmm. too. And, and, and wow. what? They had a, a kettle drummer playing, and, hmm. and they sang their own modified version of Cecilia. You remember? Cecilia. Uh, Simon, Simon and Garfunkel. Cecilia. And I haven't got... I haven't wow. got the amended version, but substitute oh, substitute wow. something political for everything that that they are saying they want, and you have the feeling. <laughs> wow! Do you know what that is? A very happy song. Um, I got to tell you an amazing coincidence. So you know, I'm here in Please. Brooklyn, but I was born in yep. Queens, um, and I grew up and raised my own kids in the area of Forest Hills and Kew Gardens and Flushing, which is where Simon and Garfunkel are from. Um, and that song is very much a hometown oh, song for are. me. Oh, there we are. I'm so pleased. And isn't that amazing? Well, it's yes. now and that's, my hometown. song is such a happy song. Now it's song. my hometown yeah. song as well. <laughs> wow. Wow. 
Great, great, so great. Say that. Okay, Allison. Yes, I definitely will. Um, it's been wonderful talking to you. to you. You've really been a great guest. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Mark. Mm-hmm. Bye. 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 Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.